Well, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 36 to 50 this morning. You've probably observed that we like to pigeonhole people into nice, neat, hermetically sealed categories. And by we, I mean Americans. I think it has maybe replaced baseball as the national pastime. Um, You know, you're either a Coke person or a Pepsi person. And if you know my wife, you know she has strong feelings on that one. Um, You're an Apple person or you're an Android person. But more seriously, you're a Republican or a Democrat, progressive, conservative, um, you're woke or white supremacist, you're tolerant or you're intolerant, and, and the list goes on and on and on. Why do we label? Why do we like to pigeonhole people like that? Uh, at its best, labeling is just a quick summary In our membership classes, when I'm teaching through the Statement of Faith, I'll tell people Grace Bible Church is a Trinitarian church, we're a Protestant church, we're a Reformed Baptist church. It's just, you know, concise terms that give people a a quick idea about what we believe as a church. At their worst, though, labels are expressions of pride and contempt. And we use them to draw artificial boundaries between the good guys and the bad guys. And once you've labeled somebody, you can just ignore them, right? We know who the insiders are. We know who the outsiders are. And we just stay in our little bubbles. And conventional religious thinking does this as well. You know, typically there are only two categories, though, two types of people. There are good people and there are bad people. And you're either one or the other, and that's pretty much all you're ever going to be. Last week, we began this new sermon series titled Meals with Jesus. And we're looking at different moments in the life of Christ in Luke's gospel, particularly meals that he shared with others. And you've probably noticed this already, um, especially if you're familiar with the gospels. Jesus has this tendency to turn conventional thinking on its head. He does this all the time in the Gospels, and he he surprises us with the way he sees the world. It's often so radically different than the way you and I see things, and and it's because we don't see rightly. And so we need Jesus to come and, and open our eyes to the way things really are. And he does that in this passage in Luke 7 this morning. Again, we're looking at Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. That's page 864 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow along there. It's also printed in the bulletin. And let me pray for us as we turn to this story this morning. Our God and Father, we ask as we turn to your word, that you would help us to see ourselves rightly. We also pray that you would help us to see our gracious Savior. It's in his name we we ask. Amen. Well, this is a highly awkward meal. 
And, and let's see how it unfolds. Look there at, at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, right out of the gate, this is surprising. A Pharisee invited Jesus to dine with him. A Pharisee. Remember what we saw last week. Jesus and the Pharisees don't get along too well, especially after Jesus dined with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house and then everything else that's transpired since then in chapter 5. This meal is unexpected, but it's not the biggest surprise, not not by a long shot. Look at how it continues, verse 37. And behold, and that's Luke's way of saying, you better pay attention to this. This is really shocking. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Jesus is in a Pharisee's home. And we learn later there are others there, probably other Pharisees, dining with this man whom we we learn a little bit later is named Simon. And a local woman shows up, a woman with a soiled reputation, a notorious sinner. We don't know much about her. She's unnamed in the story. We don't hear her speak, but her actions speak very loudly. Twice in the, in the text, she's described as a sinner. And, and later, Jesus confirms that she was, in fact, guilty of many sins. That it wasn't just the, the self-righteous perspective of the Pharisees, although that's part of it. She is a sinful woman. And, and the exact nature of her sin is not spelled out explicitly in the text, but almost certainly, almost certainly, it's sexual in nature. And it is highly likely that that phrase Luke uses to describe her, a woman of the city who was a sinner, is a euphemism for a prostitute. And so no doubt she's a very broken woman, maybe a hardened woman, someone who has sinned and been sinned against in ways that are difficult to fathom. And obviously, this woman wasn't on the guest list when, when Simon made his, his list. He didn't include her. Simon wouldn't have anything to do with this woman. He certainly wouldn't invite her to his home to, to dine at his table. But here she is. And I know most of us are probably wondering, well, how did she get in there? <laughs> you know, it's not something that happens typically at our gatherings. Well, these kinds of meals are more like block parties than private gatherings. And larger homes, which this is probably one of them, typically had a a courtyard with rooms surrounding it, and the courtyard door was usually left open so that other people from the village, uninvited, uh, those who were uninvited, were free to come in. They could lean, you know, line up around the perimeter of the walls. They could lean against the walls, observe what's going on in the, in the dining room, and maybe even ask questions. Some of the poorer people might be given leftover food. And so it's not entirely abnormal for an uninvited guest to be there. That's not the part that, that would have surprised the people at this meal. But, but certainly this woman's presence would raise some eyebrows. 
And, and what she does surely made people uncomfortable. We, we, we saw there, she, she approaches Jesus. And she's weeping. You know, not the, the quiet kind that nobody really notices. This is sobbing. And I don't know if women back then wore some form of, of mascara, but if they did, you know, her face is a mess. Tears stream down her cheeks onto Jesus' dusty feet, and having no towel, she unpins her hair and uses her hair to wipe his feet clean. She kisses his feet, and then she anoints them with ointment. And did you notice that, that bit of information there in verses 37 and 38 that, that she brought the ointment with her? So she had a plan. This was, there was some kind of design here. She had heard that Jesus was dining at Simon's home, and she shows up there on purpose to see Jesus. Now, why? What, what would this woman, this notorious sinner, want to see Jesus for? Well, later, and if you know this story, Jesus interprets her actions as an expression of love. Not romantic love, but but grateful devotion. And so she must have encountered Jesus at some point before this meal. Perhaps it was in a one-on-one conversation with Jesus, like we see Jesus doing with the the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. Maybe it was in a crowd. Uh, Perhaps she had seen Jesus heal someone. Um, Almost certainly she had heard about how Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners. Uh, that news was spreading quickly. She must have heard Jesus preach that that the kingdom of God is at hand, and that and she heard Jesus preach about God's gracious forgiveness of sinners, and she believed it for herself. She and she experienced that that overwhelming joy that comes from knowing her guilt and shame has been taken away. And now, here she is, ointment in hand, eager to thank Jesus. And, and there's a, I'm going to speculate a little bit here, but she probably had intended to anoint his forehead with it, a common gesture of hospitality, honor. But she can't get close enough to his head and ends up standing at his feet. And, and the emotion of all of this, taking it all in, finally being next to this man who has been so kind to her, uh, is just too much for her to contain. And so the scene that we've just read transpires where she washes his feet with her tears and hair. Now, this is beyond uncomfortable for the other guests. She is violating so many social taboos. You know, Jewish women at that time did not touch the feet of a man to whom they were not married, um, let alone kiss those feet. And most shocking of all was that that moment when she let her hair down. Uh, a woman did not do this in public. It was considered shameful. In the case of a married woman, it was even considered grounds for divorce. And, and I'll put this delicately, it was only something a woman did in the, in the privacy of the bedroom with her husband. And so you can imagine what's running through everybody's minds. You know, this sort of woman, 
the, the physical touch, the emotion, letting her hair down, doesn't look good. Now, remember, all this is playing out in the home of a Pharisee, a pious man, a man who is probably skeptical of Jesus. And in verse 39, we're given a glimpse into Simon's heart. This Pharisee, verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You can picture Simon, mouth twisting into a sneer. He doesn't speak out loud. It would be impolite to say what he's thinking. But inside, he's saying, suspicions confirmed. This Jesus guy's a fake. No prophet of God would allow himself to be defiled by, by that dirty woman's touch. I knew he wasn't the real deal. That's Simon's response. You know, someone who's supposed to be a, a man of God, a follower of Yahweh, and he's just watched this broken woman a woman full of shame, someone who has been used and abused, risk further humiliation and shame by making a scene at a dinner party. And most likely it was all men at this, at this gathering. It was a meal nobody wanted her to be at in the first place. And he doesn't even pause to wonder, you know, is there more going on here than, than it appears? There's no compassion, no pity, only judgment, judgment of Jesus, that guy's not a prophet, and judgment of this woman, she, she's dirty and needs to go away. Now the big question is, how is Jesus going to respond? All eyes are on him now. <laughs> okay, prophet of God, what are you going to do? Verse 40, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> you know, you don't really want to be on the receiving end of that statement from Jesus. <laughs> That's a way of saying, we need to talk, and you're probably not going to like what I have to say. And it, it's ironic, isn't it? Simon's thinking that Jesus could not be a prophet of God because he has no insight into people's hearts. He doesn't know who this woman is. He doesn't know the real thing about her. And yet, here's Jesus answering Simon's private thoughts. And he answered and said, Say it, teacher. And now Jesus tells this masterful parable, beginning in verse 41. A, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now the parable is very straightforward. Two debtors, one owes more than the other. A denarius was a typical daily wage, so 500 denarii is more than a year's worth of wages, a very significant amount. The other amount is considerably less. And the answer to Jesus' question about who will love more is obvious, right? And Simon answers correctly. But, but did you notice the hint of indifference in his response? The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled 
the larger debt. It's like he's saying, what's your point, Jesus? What does this have to do with anything? We're dealing with this piece of trash right here. Well, here comes the answer. And keep in mind before I read uh, the, the next section that in the Jewish culture of the day, hosts typically perform certain acts of hospitality at meals like this. And in fact, these kinds of meals were very carefully choreographed social rituals, and they revolved around giving and showing honor. And the host typically provided water for the guests to wash their feet with, maybe even a, a servant to do it for them. Um, hosts welcomed guests with a kiss, either on the cheek or the hand. They applied olive oil to the guest's forehead and face. Um, it provided, again, a, a symbol of honor, but also it provided a bit of refreshment after a potentially long journey on foot. And the guests, for their part, were expected to uh, show honor by praising the host's hospitality, even if it didn't really seem to amount to much. And so this, this you know, little dance is supposed to happen at these meals. And failure to show honor, whether you're the host or the guest, is a serious insult. I mean, you just don't do it. And with that in mind, look at what Jesus says beginning in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Simon's probably thinking, well, Of course I see her. We all saw her. I entered your house. Simon, you're the host. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment, uh, more co- something more costly than the common olive oil. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Simon did not show Jesus any of the customary acts of hospitality. And there's no way it was simply an oversight. Um, He did it intentionally. He planned this meal to shame and insult Jesus, and Jesus knew it, and so did all the other guests. Everybody knew exactly what was supposed to happen at meals like this. And, you know, this is the equivalent of being invited over to um, someone's house after church for Sunday lunch, and after you arrive, they shuffle you out to the backyard, put you at the kitty table, You know, a little while later, they come in and plop down a paper plate in front of you with a a tiny helping of leftover meatloaf. And meanwhile, all the other guests are in the dining room enjoying uh, filet mignon and laughing and having a good time. Now, most of us probably would not make a scene. Some of us probably would. But most of us would probably just want to get out of there and avoid further embarrassment. Jesus, however, he points out Simon's failures, and he does it in front of everyone, not just privately. And what's more, Jesus doesn't rebuke the woman. In fact, he commends her. He points out that in a sense, 
she showed herself to be the true host. She did the things that, that Simon refused to do. She showed the honor and the love for Jesus that was expected of a host. And, and her acts put Simon to shame. And according to Jesus, her actions say something about her. You know, he, he is saying in this exchange here, he's saying to Simon, you think this woman is irredeemable, a lost cause, forever branded with her shame, but I tell you, she is a forgiven woman. She's a member of the kingdom of God, and, and you know how I know? Her love for me is the evidence. And don't be confused here, the woman's deeds did not merit her forgiveness. They didn't earn the forgiveness. Later, Jesus says to her in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Her devotion, these, these acts that she performed for Jesus are the evidence that she already has been forgiven. Love for Jesus is the fruit of forgiveness received. That's why she showed up at Simon's house. She came to publicly give thanks to Jesus for the forgiveness she had received through faith in him. And here's the, the real sting in what Jesus has said to Simon. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, Simon, you don't love me. And the reason? Because you know nothing about God's forgiveness. Clearly, Simon doesn't love Jesus. He's made that crystal clear. And therefore, Simon is an unforgiven man. Yes, he is a pious Pharisee, an upright man, maybe even a good man. But the absence of love for Jesus reveals the truth about him. He's never experienced divine pardon for his sins. He's a stranger to God's kingdom. Otherwise, he never would have disrespected Jesus like this. And Jesus has just provided Simon with, with ample reason to begin reconsidering his self-image. And then the, the story concludes these final verses, 48 to 50. Jesus speaks to the woman for the first time in verse 48. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. He, he speaks it directly to her. It's a word of assurance, a word of comfort. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And, and this isn't the first time people have asked that question about Jesus. They, it, it got asked when he forgave the paralytic man after healing him. Um, and it's not the last time people will puzzle over who Jesus is. They're, they're constantly trying to figure out in Luke's gospel who this man is. And then the episode ends with Jesus sending the woman out with God's blessing on her. Verse 50, and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in, in God's shalom, his, his peace and wholeness and true well-being. And it's such a, an unexpected outcome. This, this woman who was once a despised outcast, a disreputable 
woman now belongs to the Jesus community. She's one of God's people, someone upon whom God's peace and blessing and benediction rest. It's a very awkward meal. In some ways, you can kind of have sympathy for Simon. I think all of us would have been (laughs) taken back by something like this. It's an awkward meal, but it's a beautiful story of grace, and it's a true story. And what do we learn from, from this account? And there are, there are two things. And, and the first is this. This story is actually a story about two sinners, not one. There are two sinners, probably more, but two sinners in this story, not one. You know, the heading in my Bible says, A Sinful Woman Forgiven. And Luke didn't write that. The, the editors of the ESV put that there so that readers can have a uh, clue about what this story is about. And it's true as far as it goes. There's a sinful woman here. She, she's a forgiven woman. But it's not the whole story. The woman isn't the only sinner in this episode. There's another sinner, and his name is Simon. And Jesus shows us there are two types of sinners. You know, you have lawbreakers, like the woman, and you have law keepers like the Pharisee. You know, religious sinners and irreligious sinners, or covert sinners and ov- overt sinners. And that, that's a key insight in that parable that Jesus told. That's why I said it's a masterful parable. Um, there are two debtors there representing two sinners, obviously. And yes, they owe different amounts. Wildly different amounts. Um, she's a 500 denarii sinner. He's a 50 denarii sinner. And, but, and this is the important part. And, and make sure you hear this. They are both hopelessly in debt. Neither one of these debtors can repay what they owe. They're both desperately in need of forgiveness. Both are lost apart from God's undeserved mercy. And do you see how Jesus is deepening our understanding of of sin and lostness? You know, what's the crucial difference between Simon and this woman? You know, there are real differences, right? Uh, They've led different lives. Uh, Their particular sins are different. But that's not Jesus' focus here. The key difference between Simon and the woman is this. She knew she was a sinner. Simon did not. She knew she had accumulated a debt of sin and guilt she could never undo herself. And she heard Jesus preach about God's grace, God's forgiveness for sinners. And she says, that is me. (laughs) That is what I need. This is who I need. Simon, he didn't truly know himself. Simon is is self-deceived. And studies have been done that show what most of us already know, that we're very inclined as human beings to see ourselves as better than we actually are. For example, uh, a majority of adults consistently rate themselves as better than average in categories like friendliness. We tend to put the best possible spin on our actions, our own actions, even when we know they were wrong. 
Um, among people who believe in God, most also believe that he views them favorably. Self-deception is a real danger for religious sinners, for moralistic people like Simon here. And people like Simon, they play the comparison game. You know, he compares his religious upbringing, his squeaky clean life to the woman, to the woman's, and he only sees the external differences. And he concludes, well, that lady and me, we are so different. I am nothing like her. We're just inherently different. That's why she is the way she is, and I am the way I am. And, and we got a glimpse of that in the, in the reading earlier from Luke 18 with the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple and, and the Pharisee saying, you know, I thank God that I'm not like those people, adulterers, adulterers and extortionists and so on. I'm not like this guy over here. Simon is, is focused on her debt and he congratulates himself that he's not like her. He, he doesn't see. He doesn't See, he's blind to the fact that he is a debtor too. And here's the the test that reveals whether I I truly see myself rightly or not. What is my posture toward Jesus? What is my attitude toward Jesus? Is it ambivalence? Well, that's great for people who Need that kind of thing? Or is it desperation? When you see yourself rightly as a debtor who's so far down in that hole, there's no way you can climb out. And you see Jesus rightly, (laughs) you run to him. And you say, yeah, I am a debtor and it doesn't matter how much my debt, uh, how my debt compares to this other person's over here. I am sunk apart from Jesus and you rest entirely on his mercy and grace. What is your posture toward Jesus this morning? You know, with whom do you resonate more in this story? The, the woman or Simon? And you know, those of us who are Christians can slip into Simon's way of thinking about ourselves and others at times. You know, when Jesus asked him, do you see this woman? The truth is he didn't. Simon did not see an image bearer broken by sin in need of God's mercy like himself. He sees only a woman who is her sins and failures, a a dirty thing, an other whom he can just safely dismiss and ignore and withhold compassion from. And we can slip into that kind of thinking. Whom do you view like this? Who brings out the Simon in you? Whom would you rather not see come through those doors on a Sunday morning? You know, maybe they're curious about Jesus, maybe not, but, but here they are next to you in the pew. You know, maybe it's people with a different political affiliation. You know, they are their party and they're wrong and they're evil and I don't have to treat them like human beings. Or maybe it's, it's people who look different, different than you or, or speak with a different accent than you. 
Maybe it's LGBTQ individuals. Stay away. Maybe it's smug white-collar people or rough blue-collar people. You know, who is it? How often do we label and then just resort to simplistic ways of thinking? You know, they're, they're poor because they're lazy and irresponsible and they just need to work harder. Or we resort to moralisms. You know, we look at the woman in the story and think, you know, her problem was she didn't make good choices. She should have thought more about what she was doing. She, should have, she shouldn't have spent time around the people that she spent time around. And why doesn't she just get off the streets, go back to school, get her life together? You know, take personal responsibility for yourself. And do you realize what that kind of posture toward others does? It, it dehumanizes them in our eyes. It makes us feel superior. We feel justified in withholding compassion. I mean, those people are getting what they deserve. Or they're so wicked, there's no hope for them. I don't need to bother showing love. What does that judgmental spirit say about us? When we fall into that kind of thinking and that way of looking at the world, It says we're living out of the wrong script. We're playing the self-righteous Pharisee role instead of the forgiven sinner role. It's a very dangerous place to be. You know, many of our neighbors who are not Christians look at the church and all they see are a bunch of Simons. And... Yeah, there's all kinds of bias involved in that perspective. It's not a fair assessment. It's not entirely accurate. But how often do we give them ample reason to think that it's true? What's the remedy? And it begins with this. Remembering that you and I belong to the common community of sinners. Despite external differences, um, despite different choices in life, different paths in life, each of us here this morning is a debtor. And it's useless to point the finger and argue about whose debt is greater. We are debtors. And when you owe the bank $100,000, it really doesn't matter how much your neighbor owes. You owe And the clearer our view is of our sin, the better we will grasp the greatness of Christ's mercy. And when that happens, the more his compassion and love for sinners will shape us and flow from us. And so this is a story about two sinners. But that's not all. And more importantly, Jesus shows us in this story that he is a gracious Savior. Jesus is a gracious Savior, and he displays his his graciousness in several ways. The first is his love for both types of sinners. You know, this story, it builds on what we saw last week about Jesus dining 
at a tax collector's home with tax collectors and sinners where we saw that Jesus is the friend of sinners. He welcomes them to table and dines with them. And Jesus says there in Luke 5 that he came as the great physician to heal and to restore us to holiness and righteousness and wholeness and communion with God. But Jesus didn't come only for the the obvious sinners. You know, the people whose uh, external lives are clearly broken and messed up and they're, they're obviously immoral sinners. He also came for religious sinners, for people like Simon. And it's amazing, isn't it, that Jesus accepted Simon's invitation. I mean, Jesus had to have an, uh, uh, a hint that, or a suspicion that this was probably not a well-intentioned invite. And yet he goes. And it was a mercy for Jesus to be there because he, he confronted Simon in his self-deception. You know, he had difficult words for Simon. You know, we talk about the gentleness of Christ and we love it and we... we just, we love it. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it in a minute. But he said some hard things here to Simon. But Jesus didn't speak out of vindictiveness because he had been insulted. Really had nothing to do with <laughs> Jesus' ego. Jesus was trying to break through that, that hardness that surrounded Simon's heart and produced that self-deception. And how did Simon respond? You know, did he wake up and see the error of his ways and and seek forgiveness from Jesus? Uh, We don't know. That's an interesting part of the story is that it it ends unresolved, at least in Simon's case. But but if Simon did repent and and come to Jesus, Jesus would receive him. I quoted last week John 6.37, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And I don't remember who said it. But they said that Jesus is not self-righteous about (laughs) self-righteousness. And so Jesus, in his mercy, sits down and dines with Simon and and tries to break through that that blindness and hardness of heart. He extends mercy to any sinner who comes to him, religious or irreligious. We also see Jesus' tenderness toward his sinful and suffering people. You know, had any man, any man, man ever treated this woman with such kindness and respect and gentleness? Probably not. You know, all she had known was contempt and abuse. Jesus, however, he he gladly receives her imperfect love and devotion. He commends her as a model of what it looks like for someone to love him. And he sees in this broken and and flawed woman a, a beauty produced by his mercy and grace. And Jesus was not ashamed to be associated with her. And he deals gently with this this fragile sheep. It, it took a lot of courage for her, I imagine, to come to this, this gathering to see Jesus and thank him. I, I, can't, I cannot even imagine the hateful looks she had to endure as she, wa- as she washed Jesus' feet and perhaps the self-righteous scowls of, of the men in the room made her wonder whether she really was a forgiven woman. Maybe she is what they think she is and what she had been. Jesus knows his people's hearts and he he speaks those well-timed words, your sins 
are forgiven. They're gone, cast into the depths of the sea, never to be resurrected and used against you again by God. Uh, He's telling her, uh, you have not deceived yourself. It's not a delusion. You really have experienced the life-transforming gift of forgiveness. And Jesus, he wants her to rest in it. And you know, some Christians know intellectually that they've been forgiven by God in Christ. I mean, it's one of the most basic elements of the gospel, the Christian faith. They know that in their head, but the truth hasn't really made itself at home in their hearts yet. It's kind of like a temporary guest who comes and goes. And maybe this is you. You're conscious of your many sins and failures, past and present. The past for you is full of regret. Maybe you once did something that you never thought in a million years you would do. And it's, it's in the past. You confessed it to God. Um, but the memory is just always there, always lurking in the back of your mind. It's kind of like a, a cloud of shame hanging over you. And if you could only hear Jesus' assurance like this woman did, how your heart would be set free. Well, friends, you can hear it in the Bible. This is Jesus' words of assurance for all who are trusting in him. And it's not exactly the same, but I stand before you here this morning as one of Jesus' servants. And I can tell you that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, If you are a person in Christ, your sins are forgiven. This is God's promise to all who believe, no matter how great your debt is. You are forgiven by the blood of Christ. We also see Jesus' costly love. It cost Jesus to receive this woman. It cost Jesus to identify himself with her and to receive her her love and worship. His reputation in the religious community would be trashed. But rather than shooing her away, you know, excuse me, I I, I get that you're emotional right now and and this is a big deal for you, but this is going to look really bad for me. And so can you go outside and wait and later I'll come by and we can talk privately? None of that. He comes to her defense when she's attacked by her accusers. He becomes the lion of the tribe of Judah. When enemies of his people start to attack, he stands up and he goes on the attack. And he tells the truth about her in front of all these people. This is a forgiven woman, a child of God, a member of God's kingdom. She's not defined any longer by her sins. And neither are you if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are not your sins. And whatever your past was, and we all have pasts, it's not the whole story. You aren't what others have labeled you. You are what Jesus says you are. You are forgiven. You are loved by God. You are cleansed from the stains of your sin and guilt. You are a recipient of mercy and kindness, and God's peace rests upon you. And that costly love 
that, that we get just a little glimpse of here in this, in this brief story, it reaches its climax at the cross where this same man, Jesus, takes our guilt and shame upon himself and he endured the humiliation that we deserved, the rejection that we deserved because of our sin. And he absorbed God's just wrath against sin into himself so we could hear his words of benediction, so we could receive God's welcome and know his acceptance. Jesus has extended mercy to us. What a gracious Savior. And doesn't it make you want to love him? Doesn't it make you want to fall down before him in worship? Forgiveness leads to love. And let me, let me begin to wrap things up here. At the beginning, I talked about how we have a tendency to pigeonhole people. You know, we label, we make distinctions between ourselves and others. But at the end of the day, the only distinction that really matters is this. There are two types of sinners. There are those who know they are great debtors and have been forgiven much by God in Christ, and there are those who have no clue and deny it. Those who think that their infractions are minor and they have little need for forgiveness, for Jesus, for all of this talk. Which describes you? If you're not a Christian here today, will you listen to Jesus? Will you admit that you are a debtor to God and that you've not measured up to God's standard and you're so far in debt you don't even know how how much you owe? Will you stop comparing yourself to others? Will you go to Christ and confess that you are guilty? Will you confess your need for mercy and receive his forgiveness? And if like this woman, your sins are many, know that there is an ocean of mercy in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who who do know love do know Christ and love Christ and trust in Christ. Let's remember that we too are part of that common community, that community of sinners. I mean, we have no reason to congratulate ourselves for who we are. You know, we're not superior to others and of all people, of all people, forgiven sinners should know and recognize how bad off we were. But because of God's rich mercy, we also belong to the community of the redeemed, the community of those who have been forgiven by a gracious Savior. And so like this woman who had been forgiven much, we love much because we also are great sinners. And in a moment, we're going to sing a song, His mercy is more, and when we do so, Let's sing with this this deep conviction as we utter these words. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray. Our God and Father, your mercy is more. More than all of our sin. More than all of our rebellion. More than all of our self-righteousness and blindness. We thank you for being so kind to people like us. We thank you that whoever, whichever type of sinner we were, you sought us out, 
You drew us to yourself. You brought us to Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for sinners, for your grace, for your mercy, your kindness. And, oh God, would you help us to live as people who have been forgiven much, and that there would be love evident in our lives for you and for our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.